0: Uh, we don't have any sound. Yep, now I hear myself talking to myself, so it must, be, it must be working. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 22. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 24. I want to read a number of verses for you from the New American Standard text, and you're welcome uh, to follow along as I read. In fact, I encourage you to do that. This passage of Scripture is during the um, evening of the Last Supper. And it's at that time where Jesus is in that upper room with His disciples in a moment that He has uh, longed to have with them. He has set it aside and excluded everyone else except for the twelve and uh, desiring to meet with them. And so this is the context. And in verse 24 of Luke 22, he says, And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest. And the leader like the servant, for who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, just as my father has granted me a kingdom. I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers." But he, that is Simon, said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times. And he said to them, When I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, No, nothing. And he said to them, But now... Whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, Lord, look here. Here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. How many of you have ever been lonely? That's kind of a common human experience, isn't it? All of us have been lonely at some time or another. Some of us are lonely quite a bit of the time, and and some of you may be lonely all the time. Loneliness is not foreign to our experience. When are you loneliest? It's a dismal way to start a sermon, isn't it? (laughs) When are you loneliest? Your experience may be different from mine. I'll tell you the moments when I feel most lonely. It's when I feel like I've got when I have something churning inside of me some some crisis brewing some dilemma some kind of uh, angst that's going on in my spirit and I want to share it with someone and no one understands um, they come back to me with helpful platitudes that aren't helpful and they try to identify with me in ways that don't identify and I know I haven't been heard and I really haven't been understood Do you know what I'm talking about and so you try again and eventually you just you feel like you can't try anymore because you you're not getting through whatever is in there is is so deep that it's being missed and in those moments I feel very lonely I feel like I'm by myself in this situation Jesus has arranged for an opportunity to meet with his disciples on His last night of freedom before the cross. He knows that He is going to be arrested that night. He knows what's coming. He knows this is His last opportunity to pour His heart out to His disciples, to, to give it to them one more time and draw them into His heart and, and share with them the things that he wants most for them to understand. And so he has arranged this meeting in an upper room. He has made sure that it was sequestered and secretive so that no one would find out where they were. Um, He has ensured that they would have privacy. Um, He has uh, set the stage And as he tells us in John's Gospel, I have longed to eat this supper with you. I have looked forward to it. I have anticipated this moment that we're going to have together. And so he wants to uh, share with them uh, the things that count uh, and kind of underscore them as he approaches uh, his final hours with them. And they're fussing over who's going to be the greatest. He's about to go to the cross. And they're wondering who's going to get the right side chair and who's going to get the left side chair on the throne. Don't you know he must have been disappointed? We read in John's Gospel that it was in the middle of this dispute that Jesus got up and took off his outer garment and took the towel in the basin and began to move around the table washing the disciples' feet. Now to us, that would be a, a very awkward kind of setting because we sit to the table with our feet under it. But uh, in in that period of time, the tables were more U-shaped so that the serving could come from one end and they sat reclining with their elbows down leaning toward the table and their feet behind it. So it was pretty easy for him to move around the table from disciple to disciple and to wash their feet. Something that had not been done. He had been so uh, concerned that there not be any um, breach of uh, secrecy that there wasn't even a servant there to wash their feet as they came into the room, which was the custom and appropriate. And they had all ignored that. So Jesus uh, had taken this upon himself. They're fussing over who's going to be greatest. And he begins to go around the room and wash their feet. It seems in Luke's passage that it's a bit out of context. When he says to, to, to Peter, to Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he can sift you as wheat. It's like, where'd that come from? But you put it together with John's sequence of events, and he and Peter have already had that exchange. You, you know the one I'm talking about where he comes to Peter to wash his feet, and Peter says, You're not washing my feet. And, and Peter, and Jesus says to him, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part of me. And Peter says, well, okay then, wash all of me. Wash my hands and my face. And, you know, Jesus, I'm sure, is just going, ah, Peter, you just are always a half a bubble off. You, you, just, you, you never seem to just get it. You're clean. You don't need all of you washed but it's important that I wash your your feet. So this exchange has already taken place. And and after that, he comes back and he sits at the table, and then he says, okay, now I want to talk to you about something that's important. He's already given up on on being really understood, I think. But he says, "I, I want to talk to you about something that's important. He says, the kings of Gentiles lord it over them. And those that have authority over them are called benefactors. In other words, people look up to them. Oh, wow! It's the king. Oh, it's the president. Oh, it's the senator. Uh, we've got to, we've got to give them respect, and we want to get close to them. We want to win some influence with them. Uh, we want to honor them, and, and they're, and they're basking in the glory of all of that recognition and honor. Um, People that want high office often want it because of the recognition and the honor and the power and the respect that goes with it. And Jesus said this is common among pagans, among unbelievers. This is the way it works in the world. But it should not be that way with you. He's directly challenging... The very thing that they've been doing, they've been fussing over who is the greatest. And Jesus says, I need to talk to you about who is the best servant. I need to talk to you about the one who is willing to serve all the rest. That's the person in the kingdom of God that is truly great. And he says, um, but the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater in the world's eyes, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves the table? Is it not the one that reclines? But I am here serving I think at the Last Supper, Jesus was not only washing their feet. (laughs) He may even have uh, brought the food out. Normally, that would have been the woman's job. And in their culture, women were lower than low. And, uh, you know, they just uh, came to the foot of the table and put it down and they would hand it around. I suspect that Jesus has taken such extreme measures that, He is providing the service. He's washing their feet. He's doing all the things that the lowest, most menial person would do for the benefit of His disciples while they're having this conversation about who's greatest. And He stops and makes an object lesson out of it. He says, I want you to understand that in the kingdom, in the kingdom that my Father has given me and that I'm giving to you, the greatest in the kingdom is the one who is the servant of all. And if you want to be first, you must choose the position of being last. And if you want to be on top, you must choose the role of of serving all the others. You have to have a heart about you that says every one of you in this room is more important to me than I am. In 1964, a fellow by the name of Robert Greenleaf uh, had been a high-ranking executive with AT&T And he he retired from AT&T in order to devote the rest of his life to impacting uh, the the country, the United States, in the arena of leadership. Robert Greenleaf felt that we had uh, come to a leadership crisis in this country. And that unless there was some solution forthcoming that we were headed down a path that was going to lead to our destruction. Now if you look at the situation 50 years later, he was right on the mark, wasn't he? And we had that leadership crisis seems to have come and gone and we failed the test and we're on the wrong path, but he said I want to spend the rest of my life making as much of a difference as I can. In the realm of leadership, not only was Greenleaf a very talented leader and executive himself, but he was also a spiritually minded man. I'm not going to commend him to you necessarily as an evangelical believer, but I I want you to understand that he had a, a spiritual mindset and he was interested in the teachings of Christ and he began to uh, use a phrase that he actually coined in the business world for the first time, servant leadership. And it was that phrase, actually the church picked it up, uh, although we should have gotten there first because it's right here in Luke's Gospel, but uh, the concept of servant leadership. Uh, I came over uh, to my library yesterday about a dozen years ago. I made a a study in leadership. I wanted to immerse myself in in books about leaders. And um, in the course of doing that, I picked some books off of my shelf that uh, had to do with leadership and the concept of servant. And uh, just a, a handful that I had purchased about a dozen years ago, uh, Becoming a Leader, Warren Bennis, and he has a lot of things to say about leadership. But when you read just his uh, chapter uh, t- uh, titles, um, he's talking about um, uh, knowing how to provide uh, service to people, understanding how to meet the needs of people that are under your responsibility. Ken Blanchard and Phil Hodges, many of you have heard of Ken Blanchard, uh, wrote a book called The Servant Leader. Uh, David Barron wrote a book on Moses' principles of management. And a lot of it has to do with servant leadership. Ken Blanchard, again, Managing by Values. It is not the bottom line that drives the the best organization, but it is values-driven leadership that comes from moral and ethical principles that govern behavior in a corporation. Joe Stoll, in his book Shepherding the Church, talks about being the servant leader. Um, Stephen Brown, 13 Fatal Errors That Managers Make, most of them have to do with failing to serve, failing to care, genuinely care about the people uh, under your uh, direct reports. Kuzes and Posner, in their book, Credibility, talk about how important credibility is in the role of leadership. And Robert Greenleaf in his analysis of the crisis of leadership said back in the 1960s, in the future, people will not follow a boss or a leader or someone who is in charge simply because they hold the position. They will only follow those whom they trust and have confidence in their integrity. That's credibility. It's very interesting to see how that plays out in the marketplace, so to speak, and in society. Because if we're talking politics, ultimately, lack of credibility and leadership leads to some kind of revolution. It may not necessarily be an armed revolution, but it simply says... I'm not impressed by you people in Washington. I'm going to do as I please. Because I don't trust you one whit. Or in business, I don't have any confidence in the leadership of this country, a company. I'm going to look out for myself. And, and the moment you head a direction I don't want to go, I'm going somewhere else. Because there is no loyalty and there is no credibility. There's no confidence. And teams fall apart. And so... This is a, a key leadership resource from a, a, a leadership a business school of management that deals with the idea of credibility being important. The world's most powerful leadership principle. How to become a servant leader. And then, not last, but the servant leader. A simple story about true Uh, essence of leadership, being the servant leader. Greenleaf defines servant leadership in this way, and I want to read it to you because it's an important thing for us to think about ourselves. This was his acid test of what really defines a servant leader. Do those served... Grow as persons. Now he's talking about a manager. He's talking about a vice president in business. He's talking about a corporate executive. He's talking about a politician. He's talking about a pastor. He's talking about an elder. He's talking about someone in leadership. Someone who is providing direction and oversight to ministry or business or the state of the nation? Do those served grow as persons? Do they, while being served, become healthier, wiser, freer, more autonomous, more likely themselves to become servants. And what is the effect on the least privileged in society? Will they benefit or at least not be further deprived? See, Greenleaf was looking at the big picture and he was asking the question, how can business, how can churches... How can politicians serve the people they lead in a way that the people under them grow as individuals, achieve their best potential, become uh, and reach their highest capability? How can they um, become all they were designed to be? And will the process and the effort of our products And our legislation and our ministries and our service make such a difference that even the lowest, most insignificant members of the society benefit or at least don't go any further down. I submit to you that it is impossible to think this way really and truly without being a follower of Jesus Christ. Because it it requires a kind of selflessness, a kind of self-denial that motivates us to give in ways that we do not reasonably expect a return to ourselves. It only produces a return in those whom we serve. They grow. They get better. And therein, we derive intrinsic satisfaction, but you may not be able to measure it in your bank account, or in your power structure, or in in your titles, because you are among those as one who serves. Some years ago, uh, quite in fact, quite a few years ago, I attended a church growth seminar, and it was uh, dealing, how to deal with uh, difficult people. Uh, one of the topics: how to deal with difficult people. And um, here's the here's the tricky part of this. And this is why I think it's only possible for a true follower of Jesus Christ to make this happen. Because if your goal in serving people is to become greater yourself, if your goal in being a servant leader is to raise your bottom line, if your goal is to serve people so you'll get higher up the ladder, you're not serving, you're manipulating. Are you with me? If you have any other motivation other than an unadulterated, absolutely pure desire to see someone else benefit and develop their potential, then you're Actions are manipulations. You're attempting to use a technique to advance your cause. And in the end, you're not a servant leader at all. You've just found another gimmick to make your organization grow for a season. You know this. You know this inside of yourself. And if you think about it for a moment, it will come to the surface. You know when someone loves you. And when they're just being nice to you, don't you? You know the difference. You know when someone genuinely wants to benefit you. And when secretly, they're hoping to use you, don't you? You feel it. You pick it up. You can't hide, really, who you are for very long. Because people will eventually see through it. They'll get a sense, I'm being used here. Somebody went to a a management seminar and they've got a new technique. They're going to come back and serve everybody. I see where this is going. They just want to advance themselves. Jesus said, this is the way of the world. But I want you to be a different sort of person. And those of you in this room here with me, you twelve who are my particular followers that I have selected, I want you to understand that if you're going to be worthy of leadership in the kingdom, you must die to yourself and serve the people with all of your heart, desiring for them growth and blessing and spiritual prosperity. It cannot be about you. You've got to focus on them. In the middle of that, now remember the context that's not in Luke, but in the middle of that, Peter has gone through this Dialogue over whether his feet are going to get washed or not. And this is a seamless conversation. And Jesus turns to him and says, Simon. Simon. Satan has desired to have you. That he can sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. And when... You have turned again. Strengthen your brothers. Peter is still smarting from the whole incident. He's embarrassed that Jesus washed his feet. He's not embarrassed because he didn't wash anybody's feet. He's just embarrassed that he kind of got called out in the middle of it. You know how that feels. Why didn't I think of that? I could have looked really good. He blew it. He missed his opportunity. He's already smarting. Then he had this dialogue with Jesus that made him feel more awkward. And now he's in this situation where Jesus has singled him out. And said, Peter, Satan wants you. He's out to ruin you. He wants to destroy you. (laughs) And Peter says, now wait just a minute. I'm willing to to die for you. I'll do anything for you. Don't accuse me of that. I I can stand it. I can deal with the heat. I can go the distance. I'll die for you. Jesus says, Oh, Peter, if you only knew before this night ends three times, you will deny you've even known me. And Peter's thinking to himself, no way, no way. What do you think Peter's biggest mistake was in that? What do you think, what do you think his strategic um, error was in, in assessing his, his devotion? It was all self-reliant. I can do anything for you that I choose to do. I can do this. One of the first things that we need to learn as servant leaders, and I think this is why Jesus called Peter out. One of the first things that we need to learn is that we cannot do anything without Him. We we can't accomplish any purposes. We cannot meet any genuinely worthy goals apart from Jesus Christ. This is the conversation in which Jesus ultimately says, without me, you can do nothing. Peter's problem was, he was still full of himself. And Jesus wants him to know that His success lies in absolute dependence upon Jesus Christ. If he's going to stand and if he's going to withstand the pressure, the only way that it's going to happen is if he leans on Jesus Christ entirely. Excuse me just a moment. Lost my outline. There it is. At the end of this discussion, Jesus makes a few interesting comments. He says, "When I sent you out before, without a money belt, without a bag, without even a second pair of sandals, did you lack anything And they said, No, nothing and he said to them, But now, whoever has a money belt, take it along likewise if if you have a if you have a bag, I think the uh, ESV says, knapsack, the idea is a leather pouch. If you've got one, take it with you. And if you don't have a sword, you might want to consider selling your coat <laughs> to buy a sword. For I tell you, this which is written of me must be fulfilled. He was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus was saying to them, we're entering a new phase. Tonight things are going to get tough. And over the next days, you're going to be challenged like never before. You're going to be facing opposition. You're going to be put on the spot. You're going to be tested like you've never tested been tested before. You need to be prepared it 's interesting at the end of this end of this section Jesus says, uh, If you don't own a sword, sell your coat and buy one. I think Jesus kind of pretty well knew what what people had around the table i mean they'd spent three years together and um most contemporary commentators and when i mean when I say contemporary i mean in the last fifty to seventy five years take every one of these uh statements as as very literal and they talk about um, being prepared for self-defense and uh, selling the coat and buying the sword so that you can you can protect yourself uh, against the onslaught that's coming if you go back beyond the most recent commentators if you go back to to the Puritan Matthew Henry or if you go back to some of the people in the 1700s, 1800s, it's very interesting their take on this. They view this as spiritual preparation. They see it as as an entirely different kind of preparation, and they view this as the sword of the Spirit. But I like the way one person uh, put it as uh, he did his analysis of the passage. You remember I started out by saying, Jesus, I think, was feeling very lonely in this moment because they just weren't getting it. And He comes to the end and He gives them this counsel. And all of a sudden, somebody comes up and says, look, we have two swords here. And Jesus says, that's enough. The... the person I'm thinking about, I wish you could remember his name. It's one of those old guys. They're always pretty good. <laughs> no, it wasn't Matthew Henry, actually, but some one of his contemporaries. He said he just kinda looks at him and he says, I give up. I'm not saying any more. That's enough. I'm done. I'm finished. I've said all I need to say. You know, it wasn't until down the road that they began to get it. It was down the road that Peter began to catch on. It still took him a while. Paul, when he became a follower of Jesus Christ, caught it rather quickly to have the same attitude in you that also exists in Christ Jesus. Although he... Existed in the form of God, did not regard it uh, a robbery to be equal with God, but gave up those attributes and took the form of a servant and humbled himself in the form of a man in sinful flesh and ultimately went to the cross for us. Paul caught it right away. That the message that Jesus is driving at throughout this passage is true greatness lies in the heart of those who are willing to serve others with absolutely pure motives, to give themselves to the benefit of other people, to their growth, to their development. To become all that God designed them to be and to do so in utter reliance and dependence upon Jesus Christ who is the only one that can empower you to live that kind of selfless life. It cannot be a tool. It cannot be a technique. It has to be a hard attitude. I want you to grow. I want you to be the best. I want you to follow Jesus. I want you to experience all that He has for you. I will give myself to that purpose. And I'll let God worry about me. My future and my destiny is in His hands. Will you pray with me? Father, I want to ask you to move among us this morning by your Spirit and examine our hearts. If we are still in that process of raising children, and in some ways that never ends, but there's a time when Our focus is given to our children in their development. Do we only want the best for them? Not not the best stuff, not all the things we didn't have. Do we want them to be all that you have made them to be? Do we long for them to, to develop purpose and, and, and dignity and self-worth and dependence upon you and awareness of what it means to follow you? To use their gifts no matter what they are or how different they are from ours. Father, if we are married, do we live to serve our spouse, to create an environment and a foundation and the encouragement where they can be all that you have made them to be? Not to get what we want out of them. But to create that place of safety where they can grow. And experience all the potential that you put within them. Lord, if we are managers, bosses, executives... Ministry leaders. Examine our hearts and, and, and ask the penetrating question Are we there to climb the ladder of success for ourselves? Or are we there to ensure that our team develops its full capacity? And each person on it experiences the opportunity to fulfill their heart's desires, their dreams, their passions in the fullness of what You put in them, even if they don't know You. Lord, This morning I pray that we would trust you with our future and in your grace and by your power give ourselves to those around us to be that encourager, that exhorter, that brother or sister that comes alongside and lends a hand and does what we can do to serve and to care for the needs of others. We want to be great in your kingdom, Lord, the way you measure greatness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.